sit down, grab your scriptures, and open them to the book of Zechariah. That's on page 1472 of the Pew Bible. I hope uh, you've taken uh, some time this week to read through Zechariah. This will certainly help, and especially in this book that is uh, considered one of the most confusing of uh, the minor prophets and perhaps even in the whole Old Testament. So I, I do pray and hope that you have prepared your heart ahead of time. In his book, Teaching an Elephant to Dance, James Belasco describes how young elephants are trained. They are Heavy chains are put around their, their leg and a stake, a deep stake, embedded in the ground. And as the young elephant repeatedly tries to get away, that of course that, that chain and that deep anchor holds that young elephant there. And it learns to stay in place. That's why much older, more powerful elephants, many times you look at them and they never try and leave. Even though... They have the strength easily to pull the stake out of the ground. And sometimes, if you notice, they, they don't even stake them down anymore. They just leave the chain with no stake on it. The elephant won't leave. Their conditioning has limited their movements. The stakes are gone, but the elephant stays because it remembers when it was young and could not get away. Elephants don't forget. People do. People forget. We tend to forget the past. We forget, tend to forget world history. And so thus we're doomed to repeat it over and over again. We're, we tend to forget church history. And thus we're doomed to repeat the, the terrible faux pas of the past. I mean, you just look at the proliferation of the denominations and you see that. And we forget our personal past as well. We forget the, we fall into the same sins over and over again, even though there have been consequences for them. Even though there might have been punishment from God because of them in our life. We forget. We don't look back. But Zechariah encourages us to look back, to not to forget the past. And that's what God is telling his people to do in Zechariah. In the first chapter, in the introduction, we read there in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Edo. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your forefathers to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your forefathers now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your forefathers? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined it to do. 
We are back in 520 BC, 520 years before Christ was born. Actually, we're in, we're, we're in the same historical setting as Haggai. Haggai started preaching in August and Zechariah started preaching two months later. They have an overlapping prophetic ministry. Jerusalem's walls and temple foundation and altar have all been built but left incomplete. And so the Lord raises up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai focusing mainly on rebuilding the temple. And Zechariah too, encouraging the people to rebuild the temple. But his prophecy and his prophetic ministry is far greater has a far greater visage than does Haggai, as we'll see. His ministry was to give people encouragement and hope. Encouragement to rebuild the temple because the temple is so integral in God's plan of redemption. That completing the temple, as we'll see, ultimately anticipates the future reign of the Messiah. And he encourages them, Zechariah encourages his people through eight prophetic visions, chapters 1 through 6, four sermons, chapters 7 and 8, and two oracles, chapters 9, 10, and 11, and then 12, 13, and 14. So I want, this morning, I want to look at the book thematically. What is God trying to say through those eight visions, four sermons and two oracles to his people? How is he trying to encourage them? He's trying to encourage them to look, to, to look back at their past, to look at their present, and to look to the future. And that's how we're going to look at the book of Zechariah. First, God wants to encourage his people by looking back at their past. Looking back at their past. As we remembered from last week, work had stopped on the temple for 18 years. They got back, they rebuilt the foundation and the altar, and then work stopped. The 70-year exile from God's presence was coming to an end. 586, the temple was destroyed. 516, the temple had to be rebuilt. And here we are in 520. So God says, Haggai, Zechariah, encourage them. They have to rebuild the temple. My presence has to be back with my people in 70 years. So the Lord raises up Zechariah to encourage him to start building again. And he encourages them by saying, look back at your past. Here I've sent Zechariah. Here I'm sending another prophet. And I'm telling you to rebuild the temple, and you're not doing it. Look back at your past. Look at your forefathers. Look at their disobedience. Remember their disobedience. The question that he asks right here is, where are your forefathers now? He wants them to go, they're gone. They're not here. Because of the disobedience. Remember, Haggai is preaching, come on, start rebuilding, rebuild. And Zechariah joins two months later by saying, listen, you're not doing this. Look back at your past. Look at what happened when you disobeyed. Don't be like your grandparents. Look back at your past and gain encouragement for obedience by looking back at your past Remember what happened to you when you were disobedient. That's what he's saying to them. We have that same theme in chapter 7. If you want to turn there a few pages, 
in verses 11 and following. God, through Zechariah's one of his sermons, says, But they, forefathers, refused to pay attention. Stubbornly they turned their backs and stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or the words of the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, you did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations where they were strangers. The land was left so desolate behind them that no one could come or go. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. God is saying, look what happened when you didn't listen before. Look what happened because of your hard hearts, because you weren't listening to the prophets and the word of God. Exile. He's encouraging them now, them to obey now by looking back at what happened to them then. Gain encouragement for the present by looking back at the consequences of their hard hearts. And doesn't the gospel ask us to look back? Isn't that what the gospel asks us to do? To look back? Not look back and feel guilty about our sins. That's not what I mean. And that's not what the gospel tells you to do. But the gospel does ask you to look back and learn. Look back and remember. Look back and realize that your past sins, that your disobedience, what it cost Jesus. To look back and realize what we've been saved from. The gospel asks us to look back and realize that because of Christ, we are not going into darkness and fire and pain and weeping, which is how the Bible describes hell to look back and realize what Christ did for us. That's what preaching the gospel to yourself is. That's what John was saying. The gospel has relevance now. It's just not something that happened back in 1972, 81, 99, 2004, whenever you gave your life to Christ. It has applicability now. You look back and remember, especially at this time of year, that God became man. That he earned the righteousness by living a perfect life. He earned heaven. And he could have left it there. He could have went back to his heavenly father and been done. But he said, no. I am going to give the world my righteousness. The opportunity to accept my righteousness. And I am going to take the payment for their sin. And then he conquered sin and death by rising again on the third day. We have to remember that. We have to preach that to ourselves constantly because we forget that. The application of the gospel in your own life is a balance of looking back at your sin, but remembering what Christ has done with your sin. He has thrown it as far as the east is from the west. He remembers it no more. When you come back to him and say, you remember that thing I confessed to you and repented? And he says, no, 
I don't. I choose not to. He treads the sins underfoot, it says. He doesn't count it against you. And you know what the recipe of a defeated life is as a Christian? It's when you don't preach the gospel to yourself. It's when you don't look back, see your sin, and apply the gospel to it. That is part of the tension between and freedom we find at the Lord's table, isn't it? We examine ourselves before we come into the Lord's table. Examine yourselves. Consider your sin. But then remember what Christ has done. That's what the Lord's table is all about. We are like that full-grown elephant who looks down and realizes that the chain is gone. (laughs) That's one of my favorite hymns of all time, and can it be. And that wonderful line in it that says, I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose and went forth and followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be? That thou, my God, should die for me. Preach that gospel to yourself. Live a victorious life. That's the type of life that he's talking about, is living that kind of victorious life. Secondly, God wants us to gain encouragement and give encouragement to his people, not just from the past, but for the present as well. He does this by giving Zechariah eight successive visions in chapters 1 through 6. A man among the myrtle trees, four horns and four craftsmen, a man with a measuring line, and then a vision of Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the leader of the people, a flying scroll, a woman in a basket, and then finally four horse-drawn chariots that are roaming throughout the earth. And as I looked at these this week, and, and it would be so easy to preach a sermon on each one of those visions, but as I, as I stepped back and looked at those visions, I began to see some patterns of encouragement that God was giving to his people. And if you read them, you saw that in the first and last of the visions, you have horses, and, and, and the, the theme of those visions is peace and rest in the world. The world is at peace and at rest. Comforting God's people, especially with enemies on all sides, imagine know, knowing that peace and rest will be yours. And then the man with the measuring line, encouraging those people that although Babylon has its grip on them now, that Babylon will be, will be pushed back and that, and that God's people will come back from exile. And then the wicked woman placed in a basket, that's where Babylon was going to be pushed back. The angels took this woman and took her back to Babylon. All these are given great encouragement to a people that were so, so surrounded by enemies and discouraged. But the, but the center two prophecies, the center two visions, I think, is really where we need to focus. Uh, 
where he was encouraging both the high priest Joshua and the leader Zerubbabel. That's where the major encouragement are. These two great leaders of God's people, they need encouragement at this time of great importance. Look with me at chapter 4, where we see that the gold lampstand and the two olive trees. Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me as a man awakened from a sleep. And he asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it, with seven channels to the lights. Also, there were two olive trees by it, one on the right right of the bowl and the other on the left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is what the word of the Lord, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, almighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. He will bring out the capstone to shout of God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Imagine Zerubbabel looking around at all the work that had to be done in the temple. The completion halted. Great task in such a short time. And the work work was great, but the workers were few. Looked like an impossible task. Imagine the discouragement that he had. I'm just watching, again, Ken Burns' uh, series on World War II, and I'm in the first couple years, and, and it really telegraphs the great discouragement and hopelessness that America had, that the world had, to defeat the Axis powers. How are we going to do this? That's how Zerubbabel felt. So God gives him encouragement. He says, your hands laid the foundation, your hands will complete it. Great to know, Lord, how am I going to get this done? That's where verse 6 comes in. Not by your power, not by your might, but by my power, my might, by the Spirit. He's telling Zerubbabel, it'll get done. You can't do it, but I through you can. He wants him to know that the strength to do anything spiritual is going to come from the Lord. Not by your power, not by your work ethic, not by your gifts and talents. What a lifelong lesson this is for us, isn't it? That it's really the Lord working through you and not you. Does that make any of you sit up and go, hey, come on, give me a little credit. Did me. I struggle with this. It's a lifelong struggle to learn this. To learn that it's actually the Lord working through you. John Stott, when he went to Australia in 1958, he tells of the time when he was going to preach at a, at a crusade there and, and he got the news the night before that his father had died. And he was decimated. And then he started to lose his voice. And so it came time to preach. And he pulled some guys together and said, listen, you have to pray for me. 
you have to pray 2 Corinthians 12.9. In my weakness, the Lord's strength will be shown because I don't have the, 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 the strength to do this. And he says, the time came to give the address and he preached and he had to preach within half an inch of the microphone, he said, because his voice was so weak. He said he couldn't use any of his personality. He couldn't use any of his voice inflection. And he said he croaked the gospel in monotone. And when it came time for the invitation, more people came down than at any other time. And he has said, he has since passed, but he has said, that every time he went back to, to Australia, which is ten more times, he never went without somebody coming up and saying, you know that time you preached in 1958? That's when I gave my life to the Lord. We tend to think that it's our strength. We tend to think it's our personality. When it's really the weakness that God uses. Gosh, that is so counterintuitive. Are you telling me that, Blake? Really? Do you really want me to live that way? That's how Scripture tells us to live. That's where the real power is. That's where the real power is in a testimony that you gave great testimony to. It's not that I did this and I did that. It's that I really was helpless And Christ did something. Christ came through. Not by your might or by your power, but by the Spirit, by his might, his power. It's not when we talk to somebody about Christ, it's it's not how we turn a phrase or answer a question or how winsome we are. You know, just croak the gospel. That's all that he asks. And he'll use that. This is in all areas spiritually, guys. Parents in child rearing. It's not by your power or might. It's really, your children are really going to see Christ when you're weak. Not by your power or your might will you resist sin. (laughs) Our flesh is too weak, guys. Not by my power will I preach this message. Gosh, I struggle with this, guys. You know, wanting to make the bridges perfect, the introduction and the conclusion powerful, and, and the illustrations live. And, you know, I, 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 I almost kill myself over that. Yet, I get up here and I fall apart in front of you guys. And perhaps that weakness speaks more. I don't know. That's exactly what Yahweh wanted Zerubbabel to know. It's not by your power. It's not by your personality. It's not by your work ethic. It's not by your great leadership skill. It's really the Lord. The Lord also wanted to encourage his wonderful spiritual leader, Joshua, and we see that in chapter 3. Then the Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest, 
standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side, accusing him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, and the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his dirty, filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I've taken away your sin, and I'll put rich garments on you. Then I said, I put a clean turban on his head. They put a clean turban on his head and clothed him. While the angel of the Lord stood by, the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I'll give you a place among the standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seating with you, who are men, who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have in front of you, Joshua? There are seven eyes on that stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Uh, the picture here is, is of Satan standing and discouraging Joshua. There's a spiritual uh, uh, telescope that we're given to look into the spiritual realm. The spiritual battle is going on. And Satan is whispering accusations into Joshua's ear. And I sat back in my office this week and I said, what kind of accusations would they be? What would they sound like? Maybe something like this. Oh, Joshua, look at the temple. It's only partially rebuilt. It will never be as glorious as Solomon's. Or maybe, look at these people. These people that are serving in half-hearted ways. You're being ineffective spiritually, Joshua. Or perhaps, here's the accusation to Joshua. How can you possibly lead these people, Joshua, when you yourself are such a sinner? That's the symbolism of the clothes, right? How can you do that? Does that sound familiar to anybody? How can you serve on a ministry? You know what you do. How can you serve in church? How can you be a deacon? How can you possibly be an elder? Blake, how can you possibly preach this message when you fall in this area? Do you hear those things? I do. And perhaps the biggie that Satan goes back to again and again and again in our lives, how can you call yourself a Christian and still go on sinning as you do? Does that... Is that the biggie? Is that, does that, do you hear that in your mind from time to time? That's the word of the accuser. That's what Joshua is hearing right here. To all this, to all these accusations, God wants us to realize through this vision 
that like Joshua, you and I have been given new clothes, a new turban. I mean, as I was reading this, I don't know if your mind went to Luke 15 with the father and the prodigal son running out and throwing a new robe over his son and putting new, new uh, sandals on his feet and giving him that signet ring that meant everything to him and saying, you are my son. You don't earn your way back. I give you a way back. When we hear the accuser whispering these kinds of things in our ears, we have to remind ourselves of our new righteousness. When you hear Satan saying, how can you call yourself a Christian? You have to preach the gospel to yourself. I have new clothes on. You have to ask yourself the same question that they ask the people on the red carpet. You know that in Hollywood, when they, the first question they ask the people, they say, who are you wearing today? That's what we have to remind ourselves. Who we're wearing. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're a son and daughter of the Most High King. With everything that comes with it. That we're not filthy sinners. That we're redeemed sons. That we're not wearing filthy rags, but rich new garments. We have to remind ourselves what Galatians 3.26 tells us, that in Christ Jesus we are sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You have, to, you have to preach that to yourself. Otherwise, you will live a defeated life. You know, Satan has produced in Christians, many Christians who live sour, dour, defeated, Eeyore-driven lives. And if that describes you, you have to start preaching the gospel to yourself. You have new clothes. You have a new righteousness. God does not look at you as you look at you sometimes. That Satan takes advantage of your flesh to defeat you. In fact, this whole... Prophecy is one of Jesus Christ, we find out in verses 8 and 9, isn't it? It says these men are symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant the branch, and he will take away the sin of the world in one day. Next to Isaiah, Zechariah is the most messianic of any of the prophets, Because Yahweh wants to give his people hope and encouragement, not just by looking back at the past, not just for the present, but to look forward to the future. The word branch also can be translated sprout or shoot. Like it is in Isaiah 53, he grew up before him like a tender shoot. Here Isaiah and Zechariah are talking about the birth of Jesus. They're giving God's people in 520 B.C., encouragement for the future. There's one coming who will take away the sin in one day. They're giving people hope that a priest like Joshua will be born and that will exchange their garments. And that's exactly what Jesus did, didn't he? Again, that's the gospel, the exchange of garments. I will take your filthy rags, put them on me, And here, take my righteousness. 
That's the transaction at the cross. The exchange of clothes. That's the, that's the gospel that we see here in Zechariah. In chapter 9, verse 9, we have that great, great prophecy of, of our king coming humbly into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. We see his death in Zechariah 12.10. They will look on the one whom they have pierced. And that is Zechariah 13.7. The great shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. It's all talking about Golgotha. But with that death in chapter 13.1, we see he writes, A great fountain will be opened and will cleanse us from all sin and impurity. Through that humble, submissive death, a way is opened. This is the future encouragement that is in our past, but is in their future. Do you realize that? How do they react to that? Well, I imagine they reacted to that similarly to the way we react to the second coming. When we read texts that tell us gain great encouragement and hope, I loved what what Kirk said this morning when he was introducing one of the praise choruses. We gain great hope and encouragement that he's coming again. You can begin to understand how encouraging that must have been for them because Zechariah's pictures of the second coming as well. If you look in chapter 8, if you're there, You can see his second coming is described in vague terms. Starting in verse 1, Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I'm very jealous for Zion. I'm burning with jealousy for her. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Almighty, Lord Almighty, will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a cane in hand because of his age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. What a great picture that God is painting of of security and safety when Christ comes again and rules here on earth. God's beginning to give them and us a faint picture of the second coming. It's so hard for them to believe that he keeps saying, the Lord Almighty says. Did you notice that? It's so hard for them to believe. He wants to to burn it into their minds. Listen, this is from God. This is from God. This is the way it's going to be. That's the kind of what it's like for us thinking about the second coming, isn't it? Zechariah tells us that Jesus will be coming back in chapter 9 to conquer all our enemies. In chapter 14, the rejected Messiah will become the reigning Messiah. When Jesus comes back, all wrongs will be righted, all enemies defeated, all weeping turned into joy, all sickness, health, all broken relationships healed, the sin that so easily entangles us, no more. All fears replaced with calm. What we believe by faith will be seen with our eyes. That's what we have to look forward to. That's the encouragement that God is giving us through Zechariah this day. 
I want us to dwell on that as we go into the Lord's table because the Lord's table actually has all three of those aspects. Looking back to the past, gaining encouragement for the present, and looking forward for even more encouragement. Let's consider that as we come to the table this morning. Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you will use it and change us by it. In Jesus' name, amen.